There's Bible verse I think about sometimes. Many times. It goes. And I heard the voice of the Lord. Saying, who shall I send? Who shall I send? Go for us. Go for us. Thank you. It's like a virus. Let's continue our discussion of the voice crying out in the wilderness. In the previous episode, we set the stage with John and Jesus' birth stories, as well as delving into the concept of Hellenism and what the world looked like when the Creator sent His one and only Son onto the Monopoly board to assist His image bearers. And as it appears, He is right on time. Of anything I have done, I'm going to bet that the detail on the Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Herodians, and Essenes, I bet that stays with you the longest. It has a stickiness factor, and even if you missed all the details of what I just said, you will have such a better frame of reference for the context of the times. It helps us see them, how potentially our protagonist prophet might have seen them as well. And that leads me to the first thought of, his, of this dialogue today, which is to recall that John was not just a prophet. He was the prophet that all the other prophets were waiting for, the one they were looking to come. He performed no signs of wonder to the crowds, and yet he is the pivot point. As I said in one, my one off podcast, The Top 10 Ways to Read Scripture, when you see the New Testament utilizing the Old Testament, you are unable to understand how prophecy works. John the Baptist is the quintessential example of this, maybe more than most of this side of Jesus. As you may know, it took Jesus coming back from the dead and opening the eyes of his disciples to show them all the points in the Hebrew Bible that were pointing to him. That's a tough exercise, but a necessary one if you want to go deeper. And maybe the most important thing that we all forget about all the prophets is that they were mere mortals. We tend to forget that. Don't take the human element out of this. Some of the biblical authors, same with the biblical authors. We do this to them too. These guys didn't go into a trance and come out with a completed work. The spirit is there and it is working through them, no doubt. Same with the prophets. And that is why they were able to do such amazing things and see things from a different perspective. But that almost makes my point. Ignorance is bliss yet again. When you get a message from the creator God and he personally lets you know what is needed to right the ship, you relay that message to the chosen people and it completely falls on deaf ears most of the time. That can be frustrating. And these guys and gals, all of them are very, very frustrated people. There is a book called The Prophets by Abraham Joseph Heschel that might be one of the most amazing books I've ever read. Read anything by this guy. It is brilliant. Now, this book is 700 pages long, so you might want to pack a lunch, but it's worth it. He does an amazing job of showing that these prophets were men, meaning that they are subject to the human dilemma and emotions that we all battle more than anyone. So I wanted to quote a few lines from his book to convey my point, but just like I wanted to show with Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, and Joseph in the first episode, they all have very human reactions to very non-human circumstances. So here we go. This is from his introduction. This isn't even chapter one, guys. This is the intro. 
Listen to this, quote, This book is about some of the most disturbing people who have ever lived. Great start. The men who ins- whose inspiration brought the Bible into being, the men whose image is our refuge in distress, and whose voice and vision sustain our faith. He goes on to say, By insisting on the absolutely objective and supernatural nature of prophecy, dogmatic theology has disregarded the prophet's part in the act. Stressing revelation, it has ignored their response. Isolating inspiration, it has lost the human situation. They have disregarded the prophet's awareness of his confrontation with facts not derived from his own mind. He goes on further to say, The prophet is a person not a microphone. He is endowed with a mission and with the power of a word, not his own, that accounts for his greatness, but also with temperament, concern, character, and individuality, as there was no resisting the impact on divine inspiration. So at times, there was no resisting the vortex of his own temperament. The word of God reverberated in the voice of these guys. The prophet's task is to convey a divine view, yet as a person, he is the point of view. He speaks from the perspective of God and from the perspective of his own life. We must seek to understand not only the views he expounded, but also the attitudes he embodied, his own position, feelings, response, not only what he said, but also how he lived the private, intimate dimensions of the word, the subjective side of the message, end quote. Whoo, man, what an intro. What a great posture for us to remember when we read of the prophets literally ripping their beards out in disgust at times. The mind blow that they see as the people pull away and follow other gods, the disrespect for this earth and its meaning. These poor, poor fellows, what a heavy load they carried. Nothing more for me to really say after that, quoting that. I I can't say it better. And you will see how that plays out, even for John. I might not get into this until the next episode, but at one point, John doubts Jesus. Jesus never doubts John. Why? Because John is a man. He is the greatest man to ever live, according to Jesus. On that side of the cross, he is. But he is a man. He is a person. Keep that in mind when you see how wonderful this guy is. Before I get into John's message, while while it's on my mind, let me pile on one last point on the perspective of the prophets and why it is so important to take in their critical cultural context and interpersonal relationships when we read about them. I was listening to an interview that Lex Friedman had with an ex-CIA agent named Andrew Bustamante. He asked him a great question, and it was, what is one spy trick that you would teach to everyone to improve their life? And Andrew's answer is amazing. His answer is the viewpoint of perspective versus perception. This tool will help you not only in understanding biblical characters better, it will help you at work, with your spouse, with your parents, with your clients. And it goes like this. We all look at the world through our own perception. And your perception is the view of the world around you. It is, it is unique only to you. There is no advantage in your perception. That's why we find ourselves arguing so much, trying to convince someone else of our own perception. The way to win, the way to be better and see things clear is to move off of our own perception and look at it from the other person's perspective. Perspective is an art of looking at the world outside of yourself. 
Step one is getting outside of your own thoughts and your own self. One more stage is when you try and get into the shoes of the person opposite you or the person you are trying to learn about. Sit in their seat. Sit in the seat you're speaking about and think to yourself, not how you see them, how they think. What has their life been like? How were they brought up? How do they feel right now? How did they come to this position? Man, when you can do this, you will crack open a new level of being a human. Think of the last time you were speaking with someone and they were just not picking up what you were putting down. Guess what they were thinking? That's right. The exact same thing. Why can't Tyler see where I'm coming from? Because both of us are just sharing our perception of whatever happened and we get nowhere and we both lose. Even though you think you are spouting perfect logic, what Andrew is saying is to stay on that path and expect a change is completely silly. It doesn't work. For me, I remember this when I was a first new believer and I want to tell everyone about Jesus. I didn't have any of the answers. I thought I did. And I would try and almost, you know, argue someone into salvation, getting them to see how I see it never worked. And that is because I was just shoving my perception of the world into them, not knowing anything about them. That is a recipe for failure. And that's a cool trick. So I wanted to add that. Moving on. Let's get to John's message. What's he preaching about? What was this? What was the main thought that he kept reiterating over and over until Jesus showed up with him? Is there any Bible people listening to this? I hope you thought of the word repent. A very churchy word nowadays that the church is used and not the best conveyance of the meaning. If you ask me, we, we've butchered this word into a category of uselessness, but, but that was the message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. God was the first in the New Testament sayings. He was the first one saying this thought. It was significantly different from anyone else. And it's a bold claim. This is huge news. Guys, the kingdom of the skies is here. So act accordingly, will you? John knew it would be true from the first moment in his mother's tummy where he jumped when Jesus came near. The king is here, guys, and he's about to get to work. And spoiler alert, it doesn't look anything like you thought it was going to look like. Traditional Jewish thought on end times or, or the kingdom of God coming was along the lines of, if we repent, the kingdom of God will arrive. That was some of the thought of the Pharisees and why Jesus spent most of the time with them. They were close. Second Chronicles 7, 14 is a good example of this. It's still preached in Jewish synagogues, obviously. And it says, quote, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, that Hebrew word is shuv, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land, end quote. I mean, it makes sense to me. If we want the kingdom to come to us, we got to do our part. We got to stop what is pulling us away from him and turn to him. That is why the wording that John used is so important. David Platt wrote a book on this concept. It's called Radical if you want to check it out. But the concept of repenting is not just a preacher word. It needs to be thought that to repent is to turn, turn and run in the opposite direction as fast as you can. That's a good visual. I, I still hear Ace Ventura's voice every time I hear that word. Repent! And thou shalt be saved. Here is a good American Vice reference. In, in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a saying related to this turn, this, this repenting. It says that rejection is God's protection. Tyler, I know you want to chase that rabbit, but I need you to turn and run. Why, God? Everyone else seems to be chasing this thing and headed that way. 
Yeah, I know, Tyler. I don't want that for you. But God, this is what I want. Shouldn't I be happy? These people seem pretty happy. You set goals, you achieve those goals, and then you get happy, right? I I even prayed to you, God, about this, that you would give me success in this endeavor. To which God might say, yeah, do you know what I want for you? Well, no, God, I guess I never asked you. I just asked if you would help me with my goals. Yeah, you might want to pause on that for a minute, Tyler, and include me. I have a better mousetrap. It's kind of my thing. So I need you to turn. You see that? That's the, that's the thought. By the way, real quick, we need to give these Jews the benefit of the doubt on not listening to the whole kingdom of the skies is here thing. And that is because the ones pushing back the most were the ones really listening and reading their Bible. They're reading Elijah. They're reading Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the Psalms. They're ready for their savior warrior king to come smashing their enemies who have opposed them for so long. They've been killing their wives and children for sport, taking their land and their wealth. They read the prayers of King David to Yahweh, begging for military help and expecting a Moses or Elijah archetype to show them, you know, what they've been reading for hundreds of years, literally hundreds of years. So when this guy shows up with no church, no temple, no financial backing, crazy clothes, and he is saying that the kingdom of God is at hand, uh, I'm not seeing what you're seeing here, John. We're under Roman rule. Caesar's kind of a big deal now. We're an afterthought on the global power scale, bub. And this is the brilliance of Jesus. I always say this. If you were making this story up, you would not write it this way. It's too much. It makes no sense in real time. It takes many, many sessions of meditation on the things he said and did to see them in their full bloom. And that is some good news. Amen. All right, let's unpack the reason John chose that word for a minute. Man, I can't I can't believe I just used the word unpack there. That's pretty funny. Speaking of churchy words, man, that's funny. But I did it. Anyway. Okay, this isn't guilt, right? This isn't remorse. It's not hurting God's feelings than saying you're sorry, promising to never do it again because you're going to do it again. And since we're talking about the first message from Yahweh to a prophet after about 400 years of silence and not to mention 34 years of John's life in preparation to deliver said message, it needs to be right. We are talking about getting back into right standing with the king of the universe turning your face back to God and away from sin. So for James, Jesus's brother or cousin, it doesn't matter. Faith without works is dead. For John, turning to God without turning from sin, that is equally dead. The Hebrew word for turning, I said, is shuv. The Greek New Testament word is epitriefo. And in the Latin Vulgate, which was, I mean, massively influential version of scripture in Europe for a thousand years, The verb is converto, and obviously that is where we get the word convert. Most of the New Testament writers have it in three buckets. You need to have remorse, number one, heartfelt feelings that you were about this life. You're going about this life in the wrong way, and you were compelled to take it to your creator. Number two, you need a revelation. Something, sometimes it's like Paul and you get hit in the mouth. Sometimes it's over time for most of us, dreams, visions, angels, quiet time, something. And then three, you've got to have a a realization. You need to see that there is a new truth out there and it should change your direction. So to put a bow on all these things, John chose the Greek word metanaho, and it means to have a changing of the mind. 
to reconsider your path. That's what he means by repent. Not just to feel bad about how you're doing things. He did not say be remorseful for the kingdom of God is at hand. No. In today's vernacular, what he said was change your mind for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Better yet, rethink your understanding of the kingdom of heaven for it is now drawn near. This thought is revolutionary because that is what's happening here, gang. This is a revolution. And I know this isn't like me, but sometimes even Hebrew and Aramaic can guide us, but not in this circumstance. This Greek word was chosen for a very important reason. And I know I pronounced it incorrectly. I know this is semantics, but in this case, it is very, very critical. To start a revolution, you need more than to feel bad and to work on your thoughts. This is more than an intellectual exercise. This is life change. This is global change. This is the Parker brothers coming onto the Monopoly board. There is a new character who has entered the chat. And as C.S. Lewis talked about, the character Hamlet would never know who Shakespeare was. But Shakespeare was his creator. He would never know that unless Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. And that's what Jesus did. And that is what John is trying to get us to see with new eyes. All right, Tyler, so... What do we do with this? Apparently, the kingdom of God is arriving and a change is needed. At least that's what John is saying, and that's what Jesus is saying. On earth as it is in the heavens, how did Jesus show us this? He spoke of the kingdom of God mostly in parables, which is like, you know, a short story. He was riffing on the images all throughout the Hebrew scriptures because what Jesus saw himself doing was fulfilling these stories. He's repeating the pattern they set, and his introduction to the pattern is a new wrinkle, and he needs them to see that. He is dealing with a hostile, stubborn, headstrong, negative audience, just like all the other prophets before him. And yet, his application of what this is going to look like is subversive. It's almost elusive. Here's why. It's a mind trick. Trick's a poor word. Okay. He's using a tactic to help those that are listening. He doesn't use direct information or direct input. He doesn't say, this is the way it is now. Get used to it. That never works. And you know it. It's a good way to convey information to someone, but that's not what he's doing. Learning is more than information intake, guys. People set up roadblocks when presented with direct contrast to how they've always thought. That's completely natural. If you have always thought one thing, and you know it's true, and then you get presented with new information, no matter if it is gospel, and in this case, it literally is, (laughs) you're going to be defensive. You just are. You can form the message through your current circumstances and your reality. But when you present a story, like, you know, you say a story, you say it indirectly, it finds a way in through the back door to convert that reality, that view of your reality. The goal is to draw in the listener. Stimulate them to think of it differently. This is how you get inception. That's how you get buy-in. And that's how you get life change. So when you see your king laying a towel on his lap and taking your foot into his hands to wash it, you see what a king is in a very different way. You see what the kingdom of the skies looks like in this new upside down. And to give grace to these people, of course, this took deep thought because if you're a good Jew and know what you think is coming, does that make sense? Based on the readings, when the kingdom of God comes, no one is going to need to wonder if it's happening. It's supposed to be a grand scale and blow everyone away. And also, 
everyone will be on board. There will be no guessing. This is what they're looking for. They are looking for some Isaiah 40, man, some Malachi 4, quote, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will become stubble. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, end quote. We're talking strength, power, dominance. We are back, baby. And then here's Jesus. And John saying from a muddy bank, actually, guys, let me jump in real quick here. I got some news. The kingdom of God is going to be a little bit more of a slow burn. And believe it or not, some of you are going to miss it. Others of you, it's just going to make you furious. And others will never even see it. That's the paradigm shift he is inviting us to sit on and think about. There's a great quote from this strong Catholic author named Robert Capone. I came across this book called Kingdom, Grace, Judgment. Check this out. Quote, for Jesus, the parables were not used to explain things to people's satisfaction, but rather to call into question all their previous explanations and understandings. Far from being illustrations that illuminate what people haven't yet figured out, the parables are designed to trip every circuit breaker in your mind. If you bring up the word Messiah to the disciples, they... They see an armored king on horseback. If you mention forgiveness, they start setting up rules about when it should run out. I think he's referring to Peter there and asking how many times we are to forgive somebody. And Jesus goes straight into the parable of the two debtors. From Jesus' point of view, the sooner their misguided minds had their legs kicked out from under them, the better. After all, they're yammering about how God should or should not run his own operation Getting people to just stand there with their eyes popped open and their mouth shut would be a giant step forward, end quote. So Jesus and John aren't just explaining an idea. They're simply calling into question everyone's current assumptions because now is officially upended, head over heels, upturned, capsized, and inverted, and it's way better than you could ever imagine. I am Tyler Parker, and Sunday School's out.